0: <laughs> Welcome to Food for Thought. A podcast Gab fest. Where we're in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, huh. identity, culture, what we like to read, and who we like to read. Food for Thought. Get your hands caught in our cookie jar. <laughs> <laughs> no, please don't. You sometimes have to go to the hospital
3: for that. Oh my god! Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Thank you for setting the tone
3: for this episode.
0: <laughs> I'm Tommy Teeps Pico, an Indigenous American poet, editor, and the man of a thousand laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> Daddy. Oh
4: my god! I quit. Just have to take a break.
3: Um, <laughs> I'm Fran, I'm a writer, editor, and uh apologizing is against my religion.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction yeah. writer, and I'm a top for Call Me By Your Name the book, but a bottom for Call Me By Your Name the movie. Oh, <laughs>
1: <really>? <laughs> and I'm Dennis Norris II, and I'm a reader, writer, former figure skater, and I too have fucked a peach. Oh (laughs) wait, 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 did you top the peach, Dennis?
0: Did you top the peach? Girl, no. (laughs) Wait, wait. So this is like anal beads, but peaches. What is going on? What? Everyone is freaking out right now. Did did you just stick the pit up inside? We're talking. This is just up is down, inside is out. We've talked about inversions (laughs) today. (laughs) Jesus, holy shit. Freaking Christ, Dennis. Can you just tell us what's on the menu so we can get along with this? (laughs) So for today's episode, we ask,
1: who goes gay for? play joe gives the thought stamp of approval on herpes we discuss our (laughs) big screen loves elio and oliver and for dessert we follow
0: a new shining star to glory
4: yes take it away num num num
1: babe
0: Mm, nom, nom, nom thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's start the top of this show off the way any good top should, with a little tease. Our uproarious appetizer segment, Amuse Bouche. And to amuse your bouches today, I'm going to play a game with you called Gay for Play. I am so excited about this. So excited. I give you a list of actors and actresses, and you have to guess whether or not they have played LGBTQ uh, this on the th- big screen. Now, a fair warning, I do mean big screen. <laughs> As in, it's got to be a movie in the theaters. And not okay. a TV show. I was mm-hmm. just going to ask that question. I was question, really okay.
4: hoping Gay for Play meant something else.
3: I have a feeling this game is going to have some very big reveals on our age differences. And <laughs> which celebrities <laughs> I- we can recognize.
1: Yeah, completely agree.
0: So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start you off easy. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? Because that's why I like to go. So first off, let's do Jake Gyllenhaal. Who's that? <laughs> 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 just kidding. Fran? <laughs> um, he definitely has. Yeah.
3: yeah he her. has been
1: Gay for Play, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: He has. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Of course, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal played a gay cowboy who takes it up the poop shoot by the deer departed. <laughs> Fuck off. You've been saving <laughs> hell. <laughs> by the deer departed Heath Ledger in Brokeback Mountain. Um, <laughs> did you have to start take? this <laughs> game <laughs> off with poop <laughs> shoot? Did you, did you didn't even. You I'm done. I'm I'm the fact that a I have not dead. said poop shoot for, what, 20 episodes now. <laughs> True. 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 Count your motherfucking True. blessings. All right. Next up, we've got Clint Eastwood. Fran? Uh, I'd say no. Joe? I'm also
4: going to go no. Toxic masculinity, a, I don't think so. A
1: For some reason, I feel like this is a
0: yes. Well, Clint Eastwood has never played gay in a movie, but the famously conservative actor did support marriage equality in 2013. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> wow. mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Next up, we've got Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, I would say, I want to say No.
4: I'm like hor- horrible at movies, but I'm gonna say yes. I can't. I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. Which like white actress is? She? Oh my god! <laughs> I have the same. <laughs> bro- <laughs> I
3: have the same problem with like the, I, Victoria one, Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, friend. Well, that's
1: that's a Spice Girls issue, and we'll get to that. But, um, <laughs> I always thought that Katniss Everdeen was secretly a lesbian. Oh my god, oh, that's, that's so that true.
0: <gasps> that's who that that's is. Yeah, oh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence has never played explicitly lesbian before, but. But she yes. does play Mystique in the X-Men All movies. Right. Yes. And Mystique yes. in the comic mm-hmm. books is a lesbian. Has had uh, lesbian relationships before. That's right, Most man. famously with her precognitive uh, uh, buddy Destiny. Destiny, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always a destiny, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Next up we've got Annette Benning. Uh I
3: definitely know the answer is yes. I guess I shouldn't say that, but I know the answer is yes.
4: Yeah, was that is that Save the Children? What's with the children movie? Um, <laughs> the
3: kids
1: are. It's called The Kids Are All Right,
3: and it's an amazing
1: movie. It's one of my favorites. Yes, yeah, she has. It is an amazing movie, and it's because the kids are all right. Because shockingly, lesbians can raise children.
0: Julianne Moore has this monologue
1: in that oh, movie. Oh, it's so where good! I every time I watch it, I cry.
0: <laughs> all right, um, now we're we're still firmly in the world of uh, kids are all right. How about Mark Ruffalo, Fran? Uh, he has. I want to say he has.
4: Um, he has gay face
1: IRL. So I mean, <laughs> yeah. to me, he plays gay in every movie that he's in. I'm gonna say no.
0: I'm gonna say he hasn't. The answer is, in fact, no. Um, Damn Mark it. Ruffalo played gay in Normal, Normal Heart, Heart, but that was an HBO movie. That was HBO. HBO. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll bet you it's the big screen
3: in a theater.
0: <laughs> Fran, Fran is so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pissed. Anyway, Frank Fran would not do well in law Next up, we've got Michelle Rodriguez.
3: No idea who that is. Really? No.
0: How can you claim to be an arbiter of (laughs) pop culture and not know who Michelle Rodriguez is? I never claimed to be
3: an arbiter of pop culture. Well, you like to edit people.
0: (laughs) That's true. I am... (laughs) (laughs) I love editing people.
4: Um, I am not an arbiter of pop culture, and I have no idea
0: who that is. Michelle Rodriguez, Fast and the Furious. I've Uh, never seen any
4: of those movies. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to say no that she has not.
0: I'm going to go ahead
1: and say that she has. And I'm also going to say, isn't she, like, kind of queer in life? Because when she
0: was dating, like, Zac Efron or someone, it was, like, a big deal? She's bi. She is oh, queer. Wow. Um, and she has played... She is like, um, been in every action movie, basically, from, like, 2000 until, like, yesterday. <laughs> um, oh, but yeah. she's never actually played lesbian, although in a movie called The Assignment, she plays a hitman named Frank who wakes up and has had uh, sex reassignment surgery. Oh, Problematic. No, no, it's no, no. problematic. Uh, and Frank has a girlfriend, and Michelle has I, some sexy times with her. I think I'm, this might be what I'm remembering, though. Like, I'm I remember this. Next. Next.
4: <laughs>
1: next.
0: Um, how about Gina Rodriguez, uh, Jane the Virgin? Oh, I've never seen that wow. series. But, oh uh, I'm going to say,
1: <laughs> n- I, don't, I don't know who she is. I'm not. <laughs> oh,
0: damn. I don't think so.
4: I don't know if she's been in a lot of things that I've seen on the big screen at all, but I don't think so.
0: I'm also going to say I don't think so. Gina Rodriguez hasn't played gay yet, but she oh, is going to play a lesbian paramedic in the Natalie Portman sci-fi film Annihilation coming oh, soon. Wow! Well, right, Gina. Just, come I through, just through Gina. I just pre-ordered the tickets while
2: we were talking.
0: Latinx <laughs> <Let's, laughs> ex- lesbian. <laughs> yes. Come mm-hmm. through, Gina. Now, we s- support you, girl. Speaking of Natalie Portman, how about Natalie Portman? Uh, Yes. Yes. I don't. Yes. Yeah, sh- yes.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I feel like the answer is definitely yes. Um, I mean, yeah. not officially, but like, Black, make Black with Swan is, is like Gay. It's so gay. Mila Cooper eats yeah. her out for I like full, say, a yeah. full
3: scene. Like, like it, if that doesn't mean not, she's gay, but she played. A gay thing. I don't know. The, I don't understand the parameters of this game.
1: I mean, I'm lost in confused. Sometimes we don't need words. Like we saw the scene on the screen. I feel like it counts. While
3: we're on the topic of Black Swan, I will say I still have not been taken to Swan Lake since <laughs> our last episode. And wow! Anybody who wants to take oh. me to go see Swan Lake, the ballet, yeah. like
1: you, yeah. you
4: and me, baby, you and me. Let's do I, it. Someone, <laughs> someone recently
1: <laughs> DM'd me that it was coming to Seattle. I don't but know how that happened. to you. I can't Go even. Go to <laughs> Seattle. You can see it in Seattle. All right, so
0: next up, we've got Daniel Craig, James Bond himself. Uh, y- uh, n- in a
3: commercial. <laughs> Didn't he do it in a commercial? Bud Light, maybe? I don't no, know. No, no, no. He dressed um, in drag for a commercial. Wait. Um, oh. Yeah. Okay. Li- he,
4: Yes. Fran, uh, I'm going to say no. I think I would have heard news flashes about that.
1: I'm... I'm going to go ahead and say yes, because he certainly played it in the big screen. I feel like some of our
4: our fans who actually know movies are going to be like shouting at the pie (laughs) at how how awful we are at this. Well, I know this
0: one. Uh, Daniel Craig played a gay convicted killer, Perry Smith, in the Truman Capote biopic Infamous and even had a steamy prison kiss scene.
3: And also in the James Bond movie with Javier Bardem, there was a very, very slight gay part. Huh. Huh. There's like a very like because this is just a very a slight 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 a, like uh, sense that
0: James
1: wanted. Wait, getting. so is this the pick that Philip Seymour Hoffman won the Oscar for, or the other one? Because there the were other two. One,
0: okay, Capote was the one that Philip Seymour Hoffman That's, was in. Yep, Infamous was the but other. But there one. was another. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. came out around the same time. Yep. Um, next up, this is at number ten. Our last one, Will Smith.
2: <laughs> okay, <laughs> rude. Uh, I know.
0: Yes. Uh, yes? I'm
1: gonna go ahead and say yes.
0: Will Smith played a a gay man in Six Degrees of Separation. He was a pathological liar pretending to be Sidney Poitier's son. He also had a kiss scene in that movie, but because, you know, Will Smith ain't a homo or whatever, it was actually a trick of the camera where his face passed the back of his head passed over the camera, so it looked like he was making out with the dude, but they didn't actually kiss. Shut Will Smith up. refused to kiss the mm-hmm. oh, guy. Although
1: we all know the streets talk, and there are lots of rumors ah, about him yes. and Jada. Yeah, there are. <laughs> lots. Oh my god. And I, so, I, I would
4: watch anything that happens with either of them. They are great. both
1: spectacular. They are. I mean, true. All
0: right, well. Thanks for playing this game. Thank you. For our next segment, Joe O the science o is gonna serve us some herpes. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Like, I already have all over the tri-state area. Uh Hi, everybody. So I'm here to talk about science in our, like, twice a season, Joe, the Science Ho segment. Um, And I'm really interested in this because I'm I'm a scientist by training. That's what I have my PhD in. But I also do some work in sort of the science studies uh, field, which is like trying to make sense of how scientific knowledge is made and how it's understood and then how it sort of reflects and refracts. Uh, culture. Uh, And there's basically what happened is um, there's been this revolution in scientific research in the last 15, 20 years, whereas for basically all of the 20th century, we viewed microbes, viruses, and microorganisms bacteria essentially as negative things, things that made us sick. And everything was about like, sterilizing our world from them. You bleach everything. You know, your fucking sprays kill 99.9% of bacteria and viruses. You try to keep yourself as clean, quote unquote, and sterile as possible.
0: Like army Hammer.
4: But what's been happening in the last 20, 25 years of research is that this idea has been completely turned on its head. And we're trying, we're starting to understand how, um, Viruses and bacteria are not just um, bad at all, and they're not just things that are in the universe, but they're actually a part of us. They actually make us who we are. For example, the human body has ten times more bacterial cells on and in it than human cells. So you can view the human body essentially as a walking incubator for other types of organisms. None of you touch (gasps) me. (laughs) Yum. Um, And then it was it was also discovered that uh, viruses and bacteria that we we get actually initially literally from coming out of our mother's vagina uh, that. Kind of initiates our like how bacteria meet us in the world actually program our immune system. They feed molecules to our nervous system. They set up organ and tissue development. Like without microorganisms, we're actually not human, right? So I, what I love about this is that this idea of the self and other, um, sort of of you know this constant assault of invading species has been completely turned on its head, and that sort of has a lot of political and cultural ramifications. Uh, and my one of my favorite studies in this field is on. The herpes simplex virus. Oh my god. <laughs> um, and it is done by a man who goes by the name Skip Virgin.
3: Wow. <laughs> you are kidding me. That's- not,
4: not only that, Skip Virgin the III... Yeah. Uh, that is
3: a stripper name. <laughs> <Get> <laughs> and, horns um, name.
4: and he has a, a, a very good microbiology group uh, at WashU in St. Louis, and they're some of the first people who discovered that, like, if you actually take all microbes away from mice, so a mammalian um, that we use, a mammal that we use as a model organism in lots of studies, if you take like all of the microorganisms away from them, they essentially don't develop immune systems at all. They don't develop some of their organs. Um, and he did this study um, where they looked at um, herpes simplex. So this is um, the virus that causes herpes infections, and you know most people are infected with at least one. Basically, almost every human being on the face of the planet has a herpes virus, and it infects you, and it never goes away. So it's one of these viruses that you get and you live with for all your life. So and,
0: everyone at this table has herpes.
4: Oh, like seventeen herpes. Yeah.
0: Great.
4: And there are two types. <laughs> so of... We're going to do well this. <laughs> yeah. this. Is like we're going to see how few people can slide yeah. into our DMs Thank after you, this Joe, conversation. <laughs> <laughs> ever. <laughs> Um, No, but you will believe by the end of this that herpes is sexy. Um, So herpes gets up into... All right. (laughs) It's true. Um, (laughs) Intrigue.
0: Go on. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Herpes
4: herpes gets up into your neurons, so that's where it lives. You get it... I'm already
0: hard. HSV1,
4: you get uh, from... It's typically oral herpes. You get it in your mouth, and it climbs up into your neurons that what we call innervate, so the neurons that go into that part of your body, and it lives there. And herpes is always trying to activate itself and cause a, a cold sore or a new infection, and your immune system is Constantly trying to tamp down that infection. Wow,
3: is anyone as turned on
4: as I am? <laughs> so, right so, now because... <laughs> but what they found is that actually this infection where the herpes virus is living in your neuron forever and ever and ever, and basically everyone My neuron? Your fucking My special neuron, neuron? What? Um, that, that actually prevents certain types of bacterial infections. Oh. Right? So in mice that were constantly oh. infected with chronic herpes and it's always trying to reactivate itself, they were better able to fight off certain bacterial infections. Basically, what that means is that like the herpes it's kind of priming the pump. It's getting your like immune cells ready to like go into you know I'm going to use horrible language, but go into quote unquote battle. They're ready to to take the fight on of the bacteria coming mm. in. And without the herpes, essentially your immune cells aren't quite ready, and the bacteria gets a little ahead. Um, and basically, the idea here is that a virus like herpes that has been essentially in humans and other primates since since we were humans is basically co-evolved. You can almost view it as a component of our immune system,
2: mm-hmm. right?
4: So this mm-hmm. thing that we have so long thought of as like, oh my god, herpes that's disgusting, blah 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 blah. Actually, it's something that humans have always had that actually one can view as a positive component of what keeps you quote unquote
3: healthy. So you're saying our listeners should go seek out herpes? Go like get... everyone should go get herpes for the betterment of um, themselves. Slide into my DMs.
2: Yes. Everyone <laughs> Everyone please
3: give Joe herpes. That is
0: what he's saying. And at the very least, like you don't have to be self-conscious if you have it. You don't, yeah, exactly. right? 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 And that's so, the that's really that's
1: really liberating. The, the
4: other thing about herpes is that um, even with so HSV one is the oral herpes, HSV two tends to cause um, genital herpes. And there's a lot of stigma around both of these around cold sores, but in particular around genital herpes. Um, many, you know, in the in the queer community, many many people have genital herpes. Ninety percent of people who are infected with herpes never get a single outbreak. Right. So if you have sores due to genital herpes, bench you not alone. Like number one, you're not alone. A lot of people do. But number two, there should be no stigma attached to that because everyone else has the virus. It's just you're one of the unlucky 10% that has an infection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love all of this research because it really breaks down the idea that viruses like HIV or like herpes are actually some sort of exogenous assault on the human body as opposed to sort of this long, ongoing, never-ending sort of coevolution between microbes, including viruses, including bacteria, and humans. And yes, there's some things that That can make us sick, but like that sickness is just a sickness. It doesn't have to be something that is both puts your body in danger and puts your social body in danger, right?
0: Like, at least in terms of like, Communicable diseases that we've co evolved with. It's not like fucking tuberculosis or something like right. that. Like it doesn't kill right.
4: us. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and, and I think that um, another pe- a way that people misunderstand um, microorganisms and particularly viruses, viruses t- tend to evolve from very virulent, that is, meaning that they kill a lot, to essentially not virulent at all, right? Because it's really, if you think about from the evolutionary strategy of a virus, it doesn't want to kill the thing that it needs to replicate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to, HIV doesn't want to kill you because then you're dead and the virus is also dead. With you, right? So viruses tend to start out in their um, evolish- evolutionary trajectory very, very deadly and then end up co evolving to the point where they can be transmitted but actually don't kill the host. Um, so again, it's it's constantly like, and the human genome has a shit ton of viruses integrated into it, of viruses that human beings met um, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands ye- of years ago that evolved toward essentially living in and with us without causing any pathology at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think mm-hmm. um, wh- I'm a, I am just want to end with this idea from Susan Sontag, who has this amazing writing on bodies and illness. Um, her two books are called Illness as Metaphor and HIV. And it's metaphors and she talks a lot about the way um, that we talk how the way that we talk about illness kind of doubly infects us like we mm-hmm. first have to deal with the illness wow. of the body and then we have to deal with the illness of the language that's used mm-hmm. and one of the big things that she ta- argues is that we shouldn't use military rhetoric when we talk about illness that we should just talk about illness as something that happens to the body and not about this battle this war uh, and that really mm-hmm. I think is, is very much in line with this new research that shows that we actually are in a co-evolution with microbes. And it makes
0: me think a lot of, uh, too, in like app culture with DDF, drug and disease-free, mm, exactly. or clean and negative, mm-hmm. or the ways in which like mm-hmm. people, uh, in addition to the, it being the result of a pathology, then pathologizing people on top exactly. of that. Um, so Susan Sontag writes, but the wars against disease are not just
4: calls for more zeal and more money to be spent on research. The metaphor implements the way particularly dreaded diseases are are envisaged as an alien other, as enemies in a modern war. And the move from the demonization of the illness to the attribution of fault to the patient is an inevitable one, no matter if the patients are thought of as victims. Victims suggest innocence, and innocence, mm. by the inexorable logic that governs all relational terms, suggests guilt, mm-hmm. right? So she's essentially arguing that we take all of this away, and she was writing that you know in the 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and here we are in 2018, decades later and research is essentially finally catching up mm. to this idea that she put out that we you know there is no battle between us and them there's actually only a unified one.
3: Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, that's so beautiful joe science really does make everything better
4: <laughs> go live your herpes filled
1: life
0: go get herpes uh, go live <laughs> <laughs> All right, for our next segment, the meat of our conversation, the thought process spelled T-H-O-T, we're doing our first book club of the season. Yes. Yeah, Yes. Call Me By Your Name, which you know it. I know it. We all know it. It's award show season. We wanted to throw you a bone. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing as how this is coming out the week before the Academy Awards, where Timothée is uh, nominated for Best Actor, and, you know, this is very much a part of our uh, climate at the moment. So, of co- I feel like I shouldn't even, <clears throat> at this point... I think it would be condescending to even try to <clears throat> go over the plot, but Call Me By Your Name is set in the 1980s and the Italian mm-hmm. Riviera and the budding intimate relationship between, uh, I was going to say Timothy um, between <laughs> I wish. Elio, 17 year old precocious um, musician and, and, and I don't know, whatever. I don't want to even say, he's not an academic. He's too young for any of that. And he's then also like, But he's the son of an <clears throat> academic. The son of yeah. an academic. And then uh, the grad student, um, Oliver. He's a postdoc, I believe. Who's like staying at Elio's father's mansion for the summer um and the you know the twists and turns of this plot and how they come together and go apart and then what happens you know 20 years later i'm curious though to know um maybe what are some of your general thoughts about because i want to talk you know about the book and the implications of the book the the its its translation into a film and your feelings Mm -hmm. about the film as well but i guess maybe some general thoughts about about the book first i really think um this is
4: one of the few cases where I liked the movie more than the book. Um, and what Sam, actually. What I, I, which I, Fran and I agree about a lot of things in this. Um, what I didn't like about the book is a little bit different why, than why Fran didn't like the book. Um, I made a post on the Instagram <laughs> early on that I was like, I'm so tired of reading this book, which I'm calling uh, On the Longings of Rich People. So exhausting. Um <laughs> But what I found is that the interiority – I love books with a lot of interiority, and particularly with interiority that has a longing in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I love Garth Greenwell's What <laughs> Belongs to You, which I think is this book but better. Um, but I, I, I get so – I find Elio in the book so insufferable. He's kind of like mean to the help. He like – it's just so – and maybe it's because I'm too similar to him and I have similarly toxic thought patterns, but I just was so frustrated being in his head.
0: What about he him was so irritating so to you? So I,
4: I found that – um, I mean, most 17-year-olds are irritating in that Oh, yeah. Teens be, are awful. Teens are awful. Just
0: across the board.
3: Um, I'm sorry, true. teens that are listening to the show I, right? no, <laughs> we, we love y'all, on but – I'm going to yes. hop on that and, yes, and say the exact same thing. I'm going to agree with Joe and also say, yeah, teens are awful. I was the first hundred pages of this book. I was like, is this the third hunger games? Like <laughs> I can't, I couldn't get hungry over it for cock. No, games. because the third, the third <laughs> hunger games book is yeah. so, has such horrible internal monologue and it's the whole book. And it's so infuriating. And to me, yeah, I think the biggest, the biggest yeah. like downfall of the book is the first hundred pages where you spend so much time inside, um, Elio's head, Elio's head. And I kept for the first hundred pages, I was like, this was should have been a novella. Like, it- this should, should have been, been so yes. much shorter there was there's so much agony in those first hundred pages and i was like i can only take this for so long and but i also i'm gonna you know hop on joe on joe's comment and say like <laughs> i'm gonna hop on joe physically right now here in the Ow. studio <laughs> everyone's been waiting <laughs> <laughs> oh my god all that sexual tension has been building and Is building, and building. or a fight like, um, what are we doing or yeah, both <laughs> i was frustrated and then after the first hundred pages, I started to really enjoy the book. I did too. Yeah, I, I felt like and, and so there's a I get I, I don't actually know if it's exactly 100 pages, but at, when they finally kind of get together, get together when they are physically together, the internal monologue is less so. It's still there, but it's it's less yeah. so for Elio. And there's more there's more physicality and there's more dialogue Absolutely. and there's a lot more nuance in the complications between how they communicate, yeah. um, which I found very real. And to me, to me, the biggest feat of this book and also of the movie is its ability to portray that hormonal crush mm-hmm. yeah. and the longing. So what I found to be the most annoying thing about it was also I think it's it's so much longer. it's greatest feat toward the end because yeah. I just saw myself in Elio over and over and mm. over again. And and I even in the insufferable 80 pages I got to the end of the book and I was like I remember exactly when I Mm -hmm. had this conversation Mm -hmm. with my mom. I remember exactly when I felt this way about this guy and when they ignored me. And, like, Mm -hmm. so many, like, mirror
1: images of myself. Absolutely. Well, I also... Dennis? Sorry. I was just going to say, I also think, like, I my reading was really similar in that I also, like, really struggled to get through the first 100 pages. And then once something started to happen, I started being a lot more interested. And I just think that the nature of the longing changes once he's longing for something that has happened. Like, like beforehand, it's so tortured and it's so extra. And it's like, does he like me? Does he not like me? Blah, blah, blah. But once something happens and Elio has something to grab onto and to <laughs> hold on... <laughs> And to hold on to. Literally. <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> and emotionally. It is actually metaphorically because they never show you what he holds on to. Um, they the do not. The book has some sex in um, it. Um, The book, it, has the book sex, does have some sex in it, but you. It eclipses... We'll get there. Well, Well, yeah. I actually think that the book writes about sex in a really interesting way. Mm It's one of its greatest strengths for me. But I was just going to say that, like, once it actually happens, that's when the longing gets much more interesting. And I think that the writing actually is much more elevated in those moments, too, because he's writing about something that isn't just, like, theoretical. Mm -hmm. And so um, just the sentences to me, are tighter and a lot more efficient, and there's much more power in in all of them. Beforehand, it just gets a little
0: and more crazy. Forward movement. And I can understand Teeps. that, too. I I had the opposite mm-hmm. reading, which was I liked the first half of the book more than the second half. Wow. And mm-hmm. I thought, too, because, see, what we're talking about is, like, temporality, essentially. And, and this idea towards the end where it's, like, um, that people live parallel lives, right? Yes. One of them mm-hmm. that is, like, fantasy, and then one is what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much of the front half is, like, his... Fantastical self, yeah. giving us so many different scenarios. He's mm-hmm. like giving, like you know, you don't know if so and so was actually in his bed. You don't know if his he's standing in front true. of him in beautiful. the in the um, in, in the robe. If it's mm-hmm. like if it's a penis or if it's like a tennis racket or whatever. Like, and he's constantly being like, "What if
3: he came into my room at night? What if he like put his gym shorts yeah. over me? What if he or whatever? Yeah, he's what if, what if, what if?"
0: And that, like, um, I what one of the things I liked the most about Elio as a character was the fact that. He was super ambivalent about, like, he wanted it so bad, but then he was also, he had those moments where it was like, do I, am I, do I also, if, if this person stands me up, am, am I comforted by that? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and that, like, I thought of it a lot about, I, I, I kept thinking about the poet Heart Crane. And I think a lot of Hart Crane's poetry has a similar cycle to it. I mean, he writes very, very complicated verse because he has a very, very complicated That's relationship right. to his sexuality. But, like, if you deep read and you just look at those words and you read them one by one Gay and you look fuck. them up, it's just about fucking coming on wallpaper yeah, and shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's actually super <laughs> duper simple. Yeah. But I saw these, like, the, like his poetry is all about this cycle of, like, um, doubt and fear and discretion and then a rub and then the build up and then the release and then the shame and then the doubt the and mm-hmm. then the fear and the discretion and the rub and then the build up and yes. then the release yeah. and then the shame and like i saw that happening in that character yeah. even when they had like even when it was outside of the realm of of his imagination right and the, the scary thing about making a decision the scary thing about admitting your desire to somebody mm-hmm. is that they could not give it to you yeah like yeah. If they could uh-huh. but the thing about but the thing about queerness is that it's not just about being embarrassed we could literally be killed yeah. Yeah. you know mm-hmm. like we face death for saying what it is we want from people so i so then i started to understand these passages where he would say something like i derived a certain satisfaction in concealing my feelings for him Mm -hmm. you know or he would say like i had to let him know i was totally indifferent to him you know and i saw myself so hard in that character in those moments because all i ever do is like when i want somebody really bad is turn away from them and be like bitch i don't care
3: (laughs) same i love ignoring people
0: wow um but i actually
4: felt i mean i You know that's very true of the world and queerness in general. But I felt like the world, and I think that one people respond to in the movie, in particular, but also in the book, is sort of the irreality of the world in which they're living. It's like this Mm -hmm. dreamscape of the Italian Riviera, Mm -hmm. and I don't sense the threat of violence anywhere in this book. Right? But
0: but I think like that's what makes it a different story. Is that like there aren't there isn't a villain. There isn't. Yeah.
3: And I, well, it's funny because a, a big part of why they can't express their feelings to each other is societal reasons, but mm. they don't, there, there are very few times where they say, Oh, we can't because society, you know, yeah. that really isn't there. They, they really do when it comes down to it, kind of like the hiding. Mm-hmm. They love yeah. the sneaking around. They love the, the parts of this relationship that like, that is a little taboo. And like, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that, something that was fascinating to me is how everything changes once they're able to be themselves. And then the, the problem of the novel isn't, are we going to kiss? Are we going to kiss? The problem of the novel is like, is he thinking about me at this very moment? Like, well, or, what is, what is it? Is this a relationship? Are we in love? Is this domestic? Is this just sex? Right. Like, is there
4: a future? To, I think yeah. the you know, there, the yeah. fundamental question mm-hmm. of the second half of the novel is, oh my God, like we have this love that is like the love of a lifetime. And is that can it be the love of a lifetime? And I think that for Elio, slight spoiler alert, you might want to just go forward 30 seconds, like the notion that this place where they kiss in Rome is a place that Elio goes back to again and again for Mm -hmm. the whole rest of his life, and it Mm -hmm. is constantly marked by that desire, and he never gets over it, speaks very much to this idea of parallel lives, and what Elio really desires is to have
0: lived that life with Oliver, and what Oliver really desired, we actually don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, because we're not in Oliver's head, we're in Elio's head, and we're only ever imagining what Oliver is thinking and and dealing with what he says, which is like Mm -hmm. why in the beginning when he's such a jerk, you're like, what is this person's major malfunction? But it's actually like he was also struggling to conceal his feelings for Elio. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to get back to what Fran was talking about with this, um, the, the, the thrill of concealing something and then them partially living within that. But there is a passage, I think, on 52 where... Elio's like, when he, when he realizes or he thinks he, he's been able to successfully hide his attraction to Oliver from mm-hmm. his parents, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, it told me that if I were no longer transparent and could disguise so much of my life, mm-hmm. then I was finally safe from them, his parents, and from him, Oliver. But at what price? And did I want to be safe from anybody? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that made me think, like, what is the function of numbness, right? And I'm thinking about two things in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thinking about two it's things surreal. in particular. One of them is like, it's sometimes it's in the service of a greater healing process, like Novocaine, or like anesthesia, right? Because you're, you're trying to get better. But then there's this other, there's this other one where like, if you're trying to numb yourself from the pain of a relationship... Right. But the pain of a relationship and of intimacy is something that that's how you, you, you learn. Yeah. You mm-hmm. learn through pain. That's the learning curve. Right. And it, it made me think of like something like Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm. where they extract all of the painful memories of their relationship. But then because they do, they're doomed to repeat the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that like that, that pain is a teacher. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, well, and this message comes from iHeartRadio sponsor Mercury Insurance. If you're looking to save some money, you
1: should really think about getting a quote from Mercury. Because Californians save an average of $677 with Mercury. It's quick and easy, and in just a few minutes, you might find you could save a lot of money on your auto and home insurance. Plus, Mercury was named one of America's best insurance companies by Insure.com four years in a row. Low rates, big discounts, great insurance. Go to mercuryinsurance.com today to get a quote.
2: It's crazy how much we have to pay for outdated, impersonal health care. And even crazier that we all just accept it.
1: So the pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is "Get options based on your budget with the name your price tool from Progressive." Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool. Only from Progressive. The and a afoul of the comatose Coxswain.
2: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, guys. Katie Lowe's here. You might know me as Quinn Perkins on Scandal. I'm also the host of Katie's Crib, a podcast about all things parenthood. Katie's Crib is back with new episodes every Thursday. We have got such an awesome lineup of guests. Michelle Buteau on having twins. Katarina Scorsone on raising three children. Kat McPhee Foster on being a new mom. We'll be covering everything from discipline to mombering. Tune in. Listen to Katie's Crib on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Not to go there too quickly, but um, the father's gorgeous speech at the end that Teebs and I sort of talked about as the thesis moment of the, the, the book and the film, right, where the father essentially says, uh, y- admits to the relationship to Elio. And actually, I was surprised that sort of Elio was receptive to that, given that he spends some of the novel sort of um, getting off on and being afraid of people finding out. Mm -hmm. Um, But the father sort of acknowledges the fact of the relationship to him and says, well, now you feel pain... And, f- and feel that pain. Mm-hmm. Don't close yourself off to the pain because that's also closing yourself off to and not admitting to the joy of this relationship. And if you start at 17, not admitting to the joy of this relationship, you'll never have joy in future relationships, right? So this sort of the cycle of pain is also opening yourself and
0: keeping yourself open to the possibility for joy. And, and you have to be careful because not all pain is growth. Mm. Like Teebs is looking right at me when oh he God. says that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Joe, you've been found out. No. Because no one ever knew. I mean, growth uh, uh, everyone because, knew. because it's
0: because growth comes with a requisite amount of pain. Yes. but some pain is just damage, oh. you know, <laughs> or maybe indulgence? <laughs> <laughs> but then, on, on the opposite side of that, you know, when the, well, the father also says, you know, don't don't cut yourself off from pain because then you cut yourself off from joy. I'm I'm mm-hmm. curious what you guys think about happiness because there's a part where Ilio <laughs> there's a part where Ilio waffles in between these, this notion that I often find myself going in between, right? Where he says, uh, I think this on on 49 when he's talking about happiness, he's like, all I had to do was find the source of happiness in me. And not rely on others to supply it the next time. But then later on the page, it says, was he Oliver? Then my homecoming. Uh, You are my homecoming. When I'm with you and we're together, there's nothing more I want. You make me like who I am and who I become when you're with me. Right? So what do you, I'm curious what you guys think about that. Like, does one negate the other? Is one truer than the other? The the idea that you can find a source of happiness inside of yourself, or you are happy because of what's around you? Teeves, I think
1: that's a really interesting question. And that was actually one of the, more, one of the most thought-provoking pac- passages for me when I was reading it myself. And I think that was where I began to think about the idea that the book to me, um, or at least Elio's thinking within the book, um, is predicated on the idea that we find ourselves when we find the person who sort of reflects ourself back to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not that I think that that's not true because I, in some ways, I think that that is true, but I didn't find those ideas to really conflict with each other. And I didn't Hmm. necessarily find the idea of having a person be your homecoming as the same thing as happiness. Like, I didn't naturally equate the two. Hmm. Like, I think there's a difference Hmm. between a happiness or a satisfaction that you find within yourself and your being and who you are and finding your sort of safe space or your home, the surroundings that you need to, like, move sort of comfortably through the world in a person. Like, I just don't necessarily see those two things as the same thing. So I think I, I don't see them as, as being in conflict with each other necessarily. I think for some people they probably are. I, but-
3: also, I also think, hopping on that, that the interesting thing to me about their relationship at that is that Oliver could have been anyone I don't think that. I don't think that it was imp- I think that it was he was not so much attached to Oliver as a person as a character as like this human that he's interacting as it was his very first thing and his very first sense of like love and longing this very first thrill. I I saw him getting really riled up and really excited about all of the acts of the relationship. But I did not see, there was a, a lot of things about him as a character that he would point to, but I do think that in a lot of ways, it, it was just, it could have felt interchangeable. Like it could have I been to- a completely different
0: character.
1: I totally agree with you. And especially because he's 17. But I think it's interesting because I was thinking about this too, because you really don't get much of a sense of who Oliver is as a person. Like you see his behavior, you see the way he treats people, but you don't necessarily, I mean, there's no interiority from him. It's hard him. to figure out why he likes him. wait, 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 wait. But is it just that, sorry, I was just going to say, but is it just that, like, like sometimes when people talk about love and being in love, they talk about the idea that, like, they can't explain it, it's just there, it's but, just in between them. But, and that it's just this sort of chemistry, this connection that they don't necessarily understand, but they feel it where they don't feel it in other places. And so that was interesting, because I sort of took it for granted that that was what the author was going for when he was explaining this relationship, Um, Or that was the justification that I had when I was like, why is Elio so in love with this guy? And so that's sort of how I think that love maybe operates but
4: I think you guys it's the author is arguing that it's the exact opposite of that the author is arguing that it's the sameness between these two characters that is driving their love that it's actually the fact that he this was the first person he'd ever seen who was Jewish for example so there's this huge aspect of identity this is it's the same sort of person he saw who was this version of masculinity that he was drawn to the fact that they're calling each other by each other's name which is almost this trope that gets annoying by the end of the book is is a deep reflection of the way in which love is as a mirror and it shows you this version of yourself that you want to be. Wait, but for me, there's so much identity and there's so much longing to be like this person and to y- see yourself in this person. There's so much specific that I could argue about Oliver that Elio is drawn to from, from his longing. It's not just. And I think the fact that he longs for him his entire life, even through many other loves, argues that there's a deep sameness and a deep identity that he's longing for in this person. And it's not actually generic at all and that it is actually incredibly specific to this body, to this summer they spent Together to the identity markers that they share, including their Jewish heritage, their academic identity, the fact that they can have these conversations about it's how many how many philosophers do they joke to each other about how many etymology jokes do they you know well, there's not, this deep I'm- sameness so it's like the fact that they saw each other in they saw themselves in each other mm-hmm. is the like I the idea that that anyone will read the book as like um sort of that type of desire you have for another male body because it's around but there's so much specific that I think he is so drawn to. I,
0: I agree with you, Joanna. and I'm going to say this just because, and this is Steve's, but I'm going to say this because I, at, once we got to around page 68, which is a disputed page uh, amongst the thoughts, um, <laughs> but, but I started to see the narrative actually open up and I started to see it for its subtext. And I started to see that like, it, it's around page 68 when he's, when, when Elio's kind of like, Oliver, you know, we used to be the same. How do I know this and not you? That like at one point we were together and whole. And that's when I started to see it as like a recapitulation of the Aristophanes um, mm-hmm. uh, origin of love myth, which is in Plato's mm-hmm. Symposium, Aristophanes has this speech where he talks about the origin of love. The reason I know this isn't because I know anything about Plato. It's because I know the movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch. <laughs> <laughs> and and one of the, the songs in Hedwig is called The Origin of Love. And, 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 and basically what he argues is that um, at one point humans were round and they were like back to back. And there were ones that were men and men and women and women and a man and a woman. They were the children of the sun, which was the the men and the children of the earth, which is the women and the children of the moon, which was the androgynous one. And that because we were complete together, that provided an affront to the gods and Zeus split us all in half so that we would be forever looking for the other part of our, of our person. Mm -hmm. And that like, That's what all this, like, call me by your name is the title of the book because it's like when we're together, I'm you and you're me. Exactly. Yeah. And
4: and that sex helps facilitate that. That sex literally breaks down the boundaries between your body and my body and your body and my body. So it's during sex that they call each other by each other's name. And particularly gay sex is is a type of sex where, my God, when someone is inside of me, do I ever feel like I am the same contiguous body as them, right? They're in my booty hole. My,
3: My poop shoot. While we're on this topic, can we talk about like the portrayals of sex, both in in the book and yes, in the movie? Yeah, because like I I was so fascinated by one Twitter's response to the lack of sex scene. In the movie. Because Absolutely. Because I remember watching the movie and, like, it eclipses. Like, it goes away. It turns to the, the camera literally turns away from the sex scene so you don't see it. I remember rolling my eyes and being like, oh, of course not. Like, of course. It, we're never going to get a gay sex scene. The same scene, thing honestly. happens in Moonlight, too. Yeah, exactly. And there's so many – like, we're just, like, so starved for it. But at the same time, I, like – when i remember leaving the theater angry and i sat with it for a little bit and i was like you know what like it 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 sucks that a movie that is not that bad is is under so much fire simply because we don't have enough mainstream representations out there to to pull from it it's not the it's not the i don't think every movie that has gay people and it needs to have gay sex we don't need that and it, and to me the function the function of art as it stands is not to immediately reflect all of life and everything that we do as gay people if if every gay movie had to have gay sex in it I mean that's just a really esoteric, es- esoteric way of thinking about uh, what the
0: what art is I mean I think that's too from the perspective of, of everyone in this room who is we also make things yeah right exactly. so we understand the limitations that all we're trying to do is like tell a story we're not trying to be everything that right. mm-hmm. is not Exactly. And don't get it twisted. All my books will have gay sex in them. <laughs> <laughs> like all, any say? movie that I produce what? will have gay sex but in it. I
3: However. Why people are
4: so mad is because this story has sex in it.
0: What well, I was gonna say that my problem with the the lack with the sex scene or the lack of sex scene was a problem that I had pretty much throughout the movie, which, and I think it's beautiful and and I did enjoy myself and I did from the second Timothy was in the 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 phone booth the being f- like Mom come get me when his voice cracked right there oh I just started to cry and I so didn't beautiful. stop until the end didn't of the movie. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. I think what the film suffers from is that it transitions too quickly all the time. And yeah. I spent most of last year. This is Tommy. I spent most of last year writing a feature for a production company I learned some things about writing during that time that like I just had to learn by doing it by the process mm-hmm. and the thing is when something transitions too fast it's the person not being able to write themselves out of the scene mm-hmm. so there was so it cut away too quickly all the time and I couldn't get rooted into any one scene too much mm-hmm. and there are ways in which like those conversations could have happened and then like moved through into another one, but as it was it was too jarring and so I think one of the problems that I had with it was was that that thing about cutting too quickly and then that's something that the, the sex scene suffered from as well. Yeah. I didn't hate the movie, but I walked away being like,
3: that was a very, very long, beautifully art-directed gay porn with no gay sex scenes. Sex. And also, maybe less of a plot.
1: <laughs> you are not <laughs> the only <laughs> person I've heard that from, I, to be 100% I, I
3: really feel... I feel like gay porn has... Some gay porn has more plot than the movie so, did. That was- <laughs> and I, that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the movie because plotless movies rather like super-duper plot-plot-plot movies. Like, are, uh, are you so know... Not every movie has to be a super-super-plot-plot-plot plot, plot movie. But I do
0: feel like that was what I walked away with. Can we talk about... The speech at the end that the father gives oh my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Elio, which is when he says we rip out so much of ourselves to be cured of things faster than we should that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer mm-hmm. each time we start with someone new, but to feel nothing so as not to feel anything. What a waste. What a waste. And yeah. I was definitely sobbing in, mm-hmm. at that part Same. in the movie. I mean, I remember I remember reading that part in the book and being like, drag me to hell. Yeah. Oh
4: my God, <laughs>
2: Because Whereas, that is
0: just, it's, I feel like it's such an MO of mine.
4: It's hmm. just a thesis statement. I, right? am, I mean, that's how I live my life, right? Is that like, you have to feel everything for as long or maybe longer than what you think you should, Fran?
3: I uh, read that scene in the book and was thrown back years and years ago when my boyfriend broke up with me. And I never share anything with my parents. I'm very closed off, very cagey. I remember calling my mom, or rather, my mom called me just to like check in and say hi. And she's like, what's going on? How's it going? this was the first boyfriend, the second boyfriend that I'd ever, like, told my parents about and he had just broken up with me and so we were just having a normal conversation and I thought I was doing pretty great. Like, I had had, like, kind of a shit day because he had literally broken up with me that, with that day but I was like, you know what, you're doing fine, Fran. <laughs> and then she was like, so how's <sighs> mm. And I was like, mm. 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 and I was like, <sighs>
1: It broke up with me,
3: and like I remember crying, like cl- literally. Imagine me in the kitchen and collapsing on the floor, floor crying on the phone with my mom because damn, I was you're so an Amy upset. Whitehouse. Song. Literally, <laughs> yeah. And and my, mo- I remember my mom saying me saying to me because she knows who I am and how my emotions function. She was like, "I'm so proud of you for making yourself vulnerable, Oh, baby. I am so proud of you for going out there and putting yourself out there and like literally." taking the risk of love and what that feels like. I'm so proud of you and you should not come away with this as as in in a broken way. You should come away
1: with this as a triumph. Yes, I mean, that's amazing. I think um, that's definitely one of the best parts of the experience of reading this book for me and that was one of the moments where I felt like, I went back and forth in terms of whether or not I felt like it was like a queer book or a not queer book, but that was one of those moments where I felt like it so was because I think so much of Queerness, especially early on and in that age, is all about covering up those moments and hiding it because you're there's so much, there is so much extra risk that comes to putting it out in the world. And in that moment, for his parent, and very specifically his father, to give him that affirmation. And the nature of it is not even necessarily about him being queer or not being queer. It's just that he's saying you need to like embrace all of your feelings and feel them and experience them and not cut yourself off, as we've been saying. But his circumstance in that moment and in that situation is queerness. And so the idea that his father is the one who does that was just huge for me because like... Anyone who knows anything about my writing at all knows that all I write about is gay boys, feminine gay boys specifically with daddy issues. Like daddy is because you. our daddies haven't said to us some of the things that we need them to say. And so that was one of the that was actually one of the most redeeming moments for me in the book because it wasn't completely a book about like tragedy or heartbreak that was also queer because there was that specific hope that was
0: given was like, from a source your, that really leave your needed your heart it. open. Yeah. Did yeah. the dad kind of come out?
2: He, oh, he, he absolutely yeah. came out,
0: and I thought like when when Elio was like, you know, the dad is like, I once almost had a, a, a special thing like you've had myself, but mm-hmm. I blo- but um, and then like you know later Elio's like, does mom know? Yeah, yeah, and but that was confusing. I love that it's part supposed of to be.
3: It's a, yeah. I love
0: that because it was it, uh, the other
3: interesting interesting thing about dialogue in the book and in the movie is that in the movie it was pretty much lifted like mm-hmm. completely untampered with into the movie and like yeah. you never see that in movies. And I, I've, when it, uh, sorry movie adaptations of books. But yeah I, I love that it was confusing because he was, he he kind of came out but didn't. So there was a little discrepancy. Mm-hmm. And I love that it
4: fucked up the straight relationship yeah. because that the marriage of the parents is so idolized both in the book mm-hmm. and the movie. They have this intellectual connection. They're so like they have this gorgeous family. They have this gorgeous they love each other. They love each other so deeply. And then at the end, essentially, the father kind of comes out. And he specifically – he doesn't necessarily say I'm gay. But yeah. what he specifically says is I have never in my life allowed myself to have mm-hmm. the depth of feeling that you had with Oliver, mm-hmm. which it says directly really? I mm-hmm. don't have that with your mother, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so it yeah. doesn't matter if he comes out of the closet or not. What he says is "My this marriage that through the entire book and through the entire movie you see as this idyllic marriage is actually kind of flat. Mm-hmm. And the father sort of envies the son for his heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, I think, was one of the most gorgeous moments of, of reflection that the book offers us as a gift.
0: Mm-hmm. Especially because yeah. in, the, in terms of the movie, at least, like, because the mother is given so much more to do. Yeah. Um, and, she, you, you know, you see her glance at Elio sometimes. Um, and, you, you know, she does know. She does. She absolutely does. Know. She knows. She's lived with that oh, man yeah. her whole no, life, and then no she question. knows her son. So it's yes. like, and they're kind of, and and but the father's like, you know, no, she doesn't know what it. Like there's like a turning away from that, but it's yep. like bleep, mm, 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 mm. she I knows. Felt, and you in the, I felt this
3: was more apparent in the movie than the book. But the parents facilitated yep. instances yeah. in which they could be together, yep. not just in the the trip, the, them buying a trip for, for them to roam together. Like they built, yeah. they bought them or a the, honeymoon or the but mountains. Like, yeah, yeah, but there were so many ways in which they were just kind of like, oh, so how's Elio, oh, so how's Oliver? We'll we'll let you talk on the phone later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Oh, my God. The ending of the movie was so much better than the ending of the book. Agree. The ending of the book was a trash pile, garbage pit. And I refused to it acknowledge was. it as true. It was so garbage. It was worse than the epilogue at the end of the Harry Potter it was. series. It was. It was. It was. But it, the exact exact same <laughs> mistake from an author to just be like, oh, let's tie this out with a neat little bow. And it'll be four years later, and they like get a drink together, as yeah. they're old, and like, oh, it was the worst last line
0: in the history worst of America. Last line oh my god. Of the book.
3: Spoiler, the last line is, call me by your name. Yeah. Oh my god, are Vomit. you kidding me? Did you write this when you were in 11th grade creative writing class? <laughs> I'm so pissed. And I refuse to acknowledge it as true. I re- refuse no. to believe that the end of this book is actually wait, the wait, end of the wait. book. Have you
4: guys heard that they're planning a sequel?
3: Fuck that.
4: Where, Fuck that noise. where Where an Elio dates women?
3: After uh, this, I would rather see Shrek okay. 3. <laughs> <laughs> I would,
2: the rather, movie.
0: I would yes. rather
3: watch it in 3D. <laughs> no,
0: so, next up on the show is Shrek 3 in what? 3D. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the perfect that's place to draw it out. <laughs> mm, I got that feeling like I'm full, but I could fit one more thing inside of me. Dennis knows how I'm feeling. <laughs> So to give us our dessert this week, it is going to be D. Yes. Thank you, Tommy. Okay. So
1: now that the Olympics are over, I'm going to talk to you guys about the person that I believe is going to be the face of U.S. figure skating um, for the next four, possibly eight years. Um, Some of you may remember a viral video from 2010 um, of a little black girl doing a skating routine to Willow Smith's a "Whip My Hair." Uh-huh. It's got like 55 million views. I remember watching it in a Tim Hortons on my way to celebrate New Year's <laughs> yeah. Eve. Do you remember
3: the moment? And you are at- I. You're not gay. I. <laughs>
1: you're not gay, right? <laughs> but I love donuts. <laughs> that's the thing. New Year's Eve. Um, I was I was going actually to celebrate um New Year's with some friends did in a cabin that in the night? woods. I did not have sex that okay, night. Good. This that's is the- like okay, well, I then. was still a virgin that's at this point in my life. Oh my god. Um, Which is not where I wanted to go. But I saw this video and I remember watching this little girl skate. And I I immediately was like, this child has so much talent. She has so much potential. She clearly has good coaching because her technique was really sound. She had parents that were so invested in her skating that she was skating in skates that were decorated to look like Converse sneakers. Oh, baby. I was like, this is a child who has the resources behind her to go all of the way in figure skating and clearly has the talent. And so for the last um, eight years... I have, on occasion, at more than, I would say more than even once a year, looked her up on YouTube, because this is the age of YouTube, and followed her progress. I have, like, her family has at times, like, done GoFundMe campaigns to support her training, and I have contributed to those when I could. Like, I have stood behind this child and rooted for her, because there have been so few black figure skaters who have reached the, like, elite level and the Olympic level. And so this year... This was Star, and her name is Star Andrews, and this was her senior debut where she competed at nationals for the very first time, Um, and she, of course, was trying to make the Olympic team, and she didn't make the Olympic team. She finished sixth in the country. But in her senior debut, she was the skater who brought the entire audience to her feet. She skated to her own cover of Whitney Hughes' song uh, One what? Moment in her, Time. Own un- own fucking cover. believable. Unfucking believable. And in addition to the fact that we haven't had a black skater from America who's had this kind of potential since the 80s, since when I was born, which is so amazing. I want to talk about the fact that her skating life is blackety black, black, black. Her coach is black, Derek Delmore. I watched him compete at Nationals in 1998, and after that, I got my first skating lessons because Aww. I I saw him and he looked just like me. And I was like, oh my wow. gosh, there's someone on the ice who looks like me. That is her coach. She's mentored by Ty Babylonia, who's an Olympic medalist from the 80s in wow. pairs. And she skated this year to Fever by Beyonce for her short program and Whitney Houston and herself for her long program. Everything Ugh. about her skating is black and that just doesn't happen. And her dance moves,
3: the way she yeah. orients her body, the way she gyrates, the way she enters into the piece is so explicitly a part of who she is yeah. yeah and it there's so much there's so much coded language in the way they're critiquing this show live they're always like this is the future of figure skating and i don't disagree with that but i feel like they're being like Wow, like black people are finally figure skaters. But, like, but wait,
4: wait, wait. Mm-hmm. I, who was the French woman in the who 90s did the and odds? Surya Bonnelly. Yeah. yeah. Who, who was also like had so much like blackness part, in yeah. her movement, mm-hmm. but at that time it was so maligned. And even though she was so yeah. great, like she didn't get good scores because, because she was she, like too yeah. athletic or yeah, all she of was these muscular. W- yeah. Like these was, words that are used to malign people of color all the time. And well,
1: also they exotic. And Serena Williams. Williams they in, always yeah. exotic. Exactly. So with Surya, it's really interesting because early in her career she was adopted by a white family in France and she was born in Nice and that's where they adopted her but her coaches came up with this idea that she had been that her parents had traveled to Reunion Island where they saw this little orphan and they adopted her and gave her a life. It was all to exoticize Surya and what was interesting with Surya's skating is that Surya had really ethnic hair. She had long natural hair earlier in her career. She had a really athletic sort of very typically African kind of body and she had all of this talent and you're right she was judged in the same, and she would skate to like African music. She, was. she she was also super black, but in a different way, and she was amazing. But when I was a little kid and I watched Syria, I didn't relate to her because in my head she was French, and that was just like I just didn't relate to her in that way. I just thought she was French. She has a white mother who is her coach. Like it just I didn't it didn't commute, compute for me in the same way that Derek did. Also because Derek was a guy when I saw him. But this chi- this child is like taking over American figure skating, and I'm so excited to see what happens um, next for her. And so, anytime in your life that you need a little black girl magic, just go onto YouTube, oh type God. in "Star with two R's Andrews," and you're gonna see this incredible performance from nationals from
0: her. Well, when she I, finished, and, and everyone got up on their feet, and she started crying, I started right. crying. It was I so good. I started crying. I was like, "I'm crying. Why? I'm in, I'm in this coffee shop. What's happening?" And I have like a, a like a heart of stone. Like
2: nothing. Brand <laughs> does. I'm on
3: figure skating. I, I <laughs> <laughs> that movie that youtube video brought me to tears and also Syria Bonnelly's performance where she does the illegal move of the backflip where she does the the one legged backflip she does a one legged backflip and lands on the other one leg and mm-hmm. i i remember watching that video like on my way somewhere because i just listened to a radio lab about a radio lab yep. episode about it and just Sobbing,
0: because that was a big yeah. fuck you to. I it She wasn't gonna get the
3: scores Same. that she wanted. So she I. already knew that she wasn't going to win. She already knew that she didn't wasn't she wasn't going to accomplish what it is her concrete goal was. She's like, I have a different goal now. I'm gonna yeah. prove to all you motherfuckers that I'm the fucking I'm, best. I'm better. Yeah. Actually I been, I'm, I'm yeah. literally can do something that no one has ever done before, and ever. literally
1: no other skater has, has ever done that. Ever skill. done ever. Not ever. a man. Like no one. Oh. And yeah, it's Surya was absolutely incredible. She also in that performance. Finished with her back to the judges, which is like a no-no in figure skating. No way! Because she so that was really yeah. She finished with her back to the judges. You do not finish with your back to the judges. Like that is not a thing that you do in this sport. Like Surya was so fucking badass. And if I can just say for a minute, like we have had in terms of single skating, there have been three black women who've really. Um, Gotten to that level of skating, there was Debbie Thomas in the '80s who won an Olympic bronze medal against Katarina Witt in the Battle of the Carmens There was Surya Bonnelly and now potentially, if she gets as far as she can and if she can stay healthy and she has the support that she needs, we have Star Andrews who could really like star! go all the way. Her
3: name is Star, right right way, is, baby. which yeah, is also the
1: blackest it. thing ever. <laughs> I'm obsessed. <laughs> like I'm obsessed. I can't. I can't like get enough. Every black figure skater that I know, and I I know many, like some of us who got close to being elite some of us who are like kind of in the middle but every black person i know who was a figure skater and who took their skating and their training seriously in any way watched that performance and like wept because we all wanted to be that person at some point we mm. wanted to see that person at some point and it has literally basically been generations since we have seen that person so it was like this incredibly like moving moment for anyone who looks like her who is figure skating. And I think that she can really help to change the face of the sport and to get, like, more people of color enrolled in figure skating and hopefully open up access for lots of people.
0: Yes. Light our way, Star. Light our way. Thank you so much for that dessert, Dennis. (laughs) Yes. This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our partnership with Into, a digital magazine for queer news and culture. What are you into? Head to intumore.com each week for a new love letter from your bestie bosom benches. Yeah, <laughs> right. our, our engineer is Alex Mead Fox at Spaceman Sound Studios, and our producer is the jam in our peanut butter sandwich, Alexandra De Palma. <laughs> oh, oh, oh.
4: Strawberry jam. <laughs> the most delicious part. Apricot jam.
0: Apricot, <laughs>
4: apricot jam.
0: I'm Tommy Teebs Pico. You can find me at Hey Teves, H E Y T E E B S, on all relevant social media. I'm Fran. You can find me at Fran.
3: Squish Co. on all relevant social media and also Venmo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm
1: Joseph Osmondson. You can find me at www.josephosmondson.com And I'm Dennis Norris II and I have a chat book out and you can find that Woo! online at www.awst-press.com or my website www.dennisnorrisii.com
0: You can listen to Food for Thought on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download golden audio goodness. Mm. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help quiet Fran's essential tremor. (laughs) (laughs) It'll never happen. It will never happen. Oh my God, it really is a problem, you guys. (laughs) Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Food for Thought Pod, on Instagram at Gay Sluts Who Read, sign up for our newsletter for episode insights, reading lists, and extra delectable content at foodforthoughtpodcast.com, and finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, Turns into dick pics. (laughs) To thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how. Everybody, T H
4: O T. Thanks for
0: listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.